Hello, and welcome to another uh, episode of the GYM podcast. My name is John Dickinson. I'm an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm also the chair of the Publications Committee for our parent organization, the American Federation for Medical Research. The mission of AFMR is to mentor tomorrow's leaders in medical research. Today, I'm your guest host, and I have the honor and privilege to interview our regular uh, host, the gym editor, Dr. Richard McCallum. Dr. McCallum is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology, and he specializes in functional GI disorders, including gastroparesis. Dr. McCallum hails from Queensland, Australia. He did his medical training there at the Queensland uh, Medical School, and then he completed his residency training at my alma mater at Barnes Jewish Hospital and Washington University in St. Louis before crisscrossing the country in uh, UCLA and Los Angeles, uh, Yale uh, Medical School, and then um, ultimately at UT Saint, uh, El Paso. Um, August is National Gastroparesis Awareness Month. And so we take the time to focus on this particular disease, its incidence, risk factors, symptoms, treatments, and future directions. Uh, Dr. McCallum, welcome back to the Gym Podcast. I'm glad you could take time from your busy schedule to discuss uh, this challenging condition. Uh, as a physician myself, who takes care of those with cystic fibrosis who commonly have diabetes and GI dysmotility, I really appreciate how frustrating a condition gastroparesis is for our patients, also for uh, healthcare providers. Um, can you first describe for our listeners what is gastroparesis, some of its symptoms and the diagnostic uh, approach? Certainly, John. Let me thank you, uh, first of all, for inviting me and for coming up with the fact that, yeah, we tend to try to pick on topical areas and gastroparesis awareness month does make us think about that um, as other months, but this one certainly fits into my wheelhouse very well. Um, and you're right, takes off a lot of time for patient care. House staff aren't always enamored by it. Um, and it's um, sometimes a tricky diagnosis. So I think we would all start off by saying this is a functional problem. You know, we're not looking at something that's blocking the stomach. We're not talking about peptic ulcer or pyloric obstruction, um, any uh, small bowel obstruction. You've had the endoscopy or you've had an upper GI series, may have had a CAT scan, and some of the chemistries, most of them are normal. What's going on? So people come to you with nausea. Uh, the most important symptom is premature fullness. I ask the patient, can you, can you finish a regular sized meal? Can, are you prematurely full and can't finish a meal? And that can be associated with nausea, bloating, uh, abdominal distress, could be called pain, uh, and later uh, bloating and even moving into, as the um, gastroparesis evolves, uh, into vomiting, uh, weight loss, malnutrition, and uh, deteriorating health in general, uh, electrolyte imbalances, poor diabetic control, it all, it all cascades around. So it's, it's a functional problem um that isn't thought of in the beginning but after you've done 
some tests to prove there's no obstruction and you're not patient is uh, perhaps not having any dramatic abnormalities in, in labs. Um, this is the thing to do. Do a gastric emptying. We use a an egg meal. It's the gold standard. Egg beaters, toast, and a glass of water. It's a four-hour test, and we take images and count the isotope, which is attached to the egg, um, every hour. And we have magic numbers for what's abnormal at two hours and mainly at four hours. That's where we put most of our interest to make the diagnosis. Greater than 10% of the meal is retained. At four hours, typically, we'd like it to be even 20% or greater to make it very, very clear that uh, we're not making up a, a very mild problem. Uh, diagnostic entities. Well, here in El Paso, as I suspect in many parts of the country, uh, metabolic syndrome is rampant. Um, obesity can be rampant. And obviously, diabetes is not far behind it. So diabetes is a major pathophysiology of gastroparesis. It affects the nerves, essentially, and affects these cells in the stomach called the interstitial cells of Cajal. That's our, that's our heart. That's the electrical signal. Three cycles a minute. We all have it all day and all night. Unlike the heart, we don't choose to contract three times a minute all day and all night. We select our times. Postperandially is the main time, and perhaps every two hours, particularly during the night, we do a housekeeping procedure where we take out the, the broccoli, the cauliflower, the leftover food, and we do housekeeping, and we prepare your stomach and your GI tract for the adventures of the next day's meals. So it's a housekeeper, it's a digestive aid, and it makes it, it stimulates the contractions, which mash up the food into chyme. Particles less than six millimeters can go through the pylorus, and there we go in the small bowel and get absorbed. So diabetes in El Paso, probably 60, 65% of my patients, um, and it's duration. It's duration. We want to have at least five years of diabetes and maybe, um, you know, getting closer to 10. About 10% of juvenile onset, but most of our patients are adult type 2. Um, duration is very important, as I said. Uh, we do see exacerbations of glucose control. If you go to diabetic ketoacidosis, all of us are going to vomit. Uh, but that's an acute event. When the dust settles and the glucose returns and the acidosis goes away, the stomach could be normal. It it's, has to be tested. But peripheral neuropathy clinically is a tip-off. If you've got a peripheral neuropathy from your diabetes, you're a candidate to have uh, certainly uh, gastroparesis. And recently, uh, for diabetes at least, the big confusing issue has been GLP-1 agonists, you know, which are now approved for obesity. You don't have to be a diabetic, but in diabetes, GLP-1 agonists are given to make you lose weight and get better diabetic control. And they actually do it by making you nauseated and inhibiting or slowing gastric emptying. So when you interpret your gastric emptying in a diabetic, 
Mm. You've got to be um, tuned in to GOP-1 agonists and also tuned into narcotics, which are given sometimes for other reasons, maybe back pain, and that unfortunately can contribute to a, a slow stomach. Around the country, idiopathic. Idiopathic doctor, we don't know what happened. She's been nauseated and vomiting for three or six months. Do something. Well, confirm it, first of all. Confirm that it is gastroparesis and not related to medications um, or sometimes marijuana taken acutely before the gastric emptying test can slow it. So what is idiopathic? Well, we blame it on sort of like getting struck by lightning. We blame it on a a strike of viral gastroenteritis. Most of us get it, take a couple of days and recover and go back to work. A subset, we don't know what the percent is, has such a very virile bug, high dose, maybe a poor response, and they develop neuromuscular dysfunction. We see on biopsies, uh, inflammatory changes uh, around the neurons, around the, the, the cells in the, um, the, the myenteric plexus, nerves in the, in the stomach. And we extrapolate that this has been an extraordinary host response, too much bug, and hence a scenario of continued nausea, intermittent vomiting. We hope that would be six to 12 months that mending and, and recovery is in the wings because unlike diabetes, it never gives in. Diabetes, if you've got gastroparesis, you're gastroparetic for life unless we do a certain procedure. Idiopathic, we hope for the best. You may get better with time, but we don't have a, a target etiology. But we consider things that we missed Connective tissue disease can be subtle and involve the gut. Uh, we're talking about hypermobility syndrome, Erlos-Danlos syndrome, sneaks into the rheumatology world and can interfere with gut function, often through um, POT syndrome as another tip-off. Uh, we look at patients who have had unexpected surgery, particularly a pop fundoplication, where the vagus nerve's been damaged accidentally, and the vagus nerve is the conductor of the orchestra in the stomach. If that's been damaged, you'll have gastroparesis. And then we look at thyroid disease, Addison's hypoadrenalism. We try to pick up some pearls and make sure we're not overestimating what idiopathic is. We've searched diligently and... Um, so they're the main players, John. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. What, um, what treatment options are available in terms of uh, alleviating some of these symptoms for our patients? So I focus on nausea. I think nausea is a great underestimated symptom in uh, beyond GI even. I think pregnant women will attest to that. So I, I approach nausea very aggressively. Um, you don't have to be vomiting. Uh, that's, that's a bonus. So we, um, 
do a full court press with uh, the usual suspects um, on Dancertron or Zofran, Fennigan, or Promazine. Uh, I like to use a scopolamine patch, which gives you 24-hour coverage of nausea, three days at a time. Um, a prepotent is a new um, uh, antiemetic coming out of the chemotherapy world. And so we barrage you uh, with those agents. They are not prokinetic, uh, obviously. Prokinetic means we are stimulating muscle contractions. We're overriding the neuropathy and going straight to the muscle to wake it up and have the stomach contract again and get rid of that bezoar or get rid of the old food left in your stomach and control your diabetes better. Poor diabetic control is a major tip-off that something's going on in the stomach, provided the patient's being attentive to their meds. So then we go to prokinetics, and the one that's the only one that's been approved for 40 years, I was doing this during my fellowship, is metoclopramide, or regular. And when I say that to you, at your age, you immediately synapse with cheese. It's got a black box warning, and my patients may get tired of dyskinesia. Well, that's been a good brainwash story, uh, which uh, we just presented major data. This year's DDW, Death Disease Week, in San Diego, where we looked at 32 million claims um, through insurance companies on patients who are on Reglan. And we have learned now that it's 0.001% chance of getting tired of dyskinesia. The cases in the past were patients who were taking antipsychotics, other dopamine antagonists, had latent Parkinson's, or were not well, not well diagnosed, or ignored. So why I'm getting into that is metoclopamide works through blocking dopamine receptors in the brain, chemoreceptor trigger zone. It crosses the blood-brain barrier, as in inducing a slightly Parkinsonian component, if you're not careful. And it affects the gut by blocking dopamine in the gut. It releases more acetylcholine and your stomach contracts better and you have peristaltic function return. So metoclopramide uh, should be used very, very liberally. But you need to be a good physician and explain to the patient side effects that could occur. More common ones are agitation, restlessness, breast enlargement, because it secretes, it makes more prolactin in the pituitary. We secrete prolactin. Um, and we may have more agitation and don't sleep well at night. It's only after some months of therapy might you see a tremor. And then you might see the, the dyskinesia movements of the face and tongue. So we need to keep Reglan on the front burner. And it's just, it's just returned to the front burner uh, with a new formulation, a spray. A spray that can be sprayed four times a day in, in your nose before meals. And that goes, it bypasses the stomach. You don't have to try to get past the food and the, the pills that are on a cue line in the stomach, you bypass liver metabolism and you get immediate plasma level within 15 minutes. 
So we're now preaching the gospel um, to use this new uh, metaclopramide spray and um, recommend that our, our, that be first-line therapy because gastroparesis means that, um, by definition, things are moving well, pills are not getting absorbed, and they do not coincide well uh, with the increase in blood uh, level of glucose after a meal. So that's a very important new development, John. Otherwise, there are so-called off-label prokinetics. Erythromycin can be resurrected. It works for a while, but usually there's a uh, tachyphylaxis. Uh, we can use uh, a neostigmine uh, variant uh, that can stimulate some activity, mining more on the small bowel. Um, and we've got some medications in the wings with the FDA, but uh, there's a new drug called Procalopride, otherwise known as uh, Motegrity, that's being released for constipation. It's a 5-HT serotonin agonist, and you can use that, uh, particularly in patients with combined slow stomach and some constipation. Yeah, we've seen that one used in several of our CF patients who have constipation and gastroparesis. Yeah. yeah. What What do you make of um, gastric pacemaking? Yeah, John, that's a good question. Um, we pioneered that. Um, the first paper we published was in 2001. Um, it was oversold by Medtronic. I don't think purposely. I think maybe some of the animal lab people overinterpreted the data, that they thought this would activate these interstitial cells of Cajal, which are depleted, 50% or more depleted, stimulate electrical activity, wake up the muscle, and we'd be moving downstream, and um, all problems would be solved. Uh, no. What we learned is that putting a gastric electrical stimulator in the stomach, we suture it in, uh, laparoscopically, or now it's only laparoscopic, but it's still so open, and comes out into a little, a little uh, sort of much like a cardiac pacemaker, a little box under the skin and programmed. Um, it's a powerful antiemetic, a powerful antiemetic. It does not reactivate gastric emptying, which is not working, and it doesn't uh, take away the um, dys dysrhythmia of the stomach, which leads um, to the trouble with the muscle. So what we've done over the years, John, is combine that with a pyloroplasty. The major problem is here, let's empty your stomach. We've got to improve your ejection fraction. That's simple stuff. And then it's not just that. Pyloroplasty alone is not enough. You have to have the simulator to take care of the nausea and the other symptoms, premature fullness, uh, some visceral afferent sensitivity. We just finished a double-blind clinical trial presented at DDW in San Diego. Took 40 patients, half of them. We did a pleuroplasty and turned the stimulator on. Half, we did a pleuroplasty and left it off for three months. And we compared their symptoms. And significant difference in the total symptom score 
mainly based on nausea and vomiting if you're turned on. And when we turn the off people on, over the next three months, they matched the people turned on with polaroplasty for six months. So quite frankly, John, we do have definitive therapy. And I must say, my threshold is lower. I look at quality of life. Diabetics do not have a normal lifespan. Some are on dialysis, which is taking up three days a week. Some are uh, limited by peripheral neuropathy. Some are getting blind from retinopathy. I'm a realist. I'm not going to keep changing doses of drugs and upping the ante and going to prayer services. I, I can take a patient who's, doctor, I'm not happy. I don't have a good family life. I can't work. I'm sitting on the porch in a, in a rocking chair. So I'm lowering my threshold to maybe 40% of my patients. I'm saying, look, I can get an 80% improvement in you by doing a two-hour surgery. Uh, and this device, the stimulator, lasts 10 years with batteries, and your life will change. You don't need to see me. You won't be hospitalized every other week or in the ER with vomiting. And I think it's a great sell. Quality of life and realistic medicine, not just trying to move the doses around and hope for the best. So the pathology is the pylorus. Polaris is fibrotic over time and depleted cells of kahal. So even though your drugs may be better in the stomach, they've got to get through the exit. You've got to get through the door, and the door is not opening. Mm -hmm. So as you evolve with diabetic gastroparesis, idiopathic, post-phagotomy, the point is you will become non-responsive to medical therapy, particularly in diabetes. And it's time to push the button. We've got definitive therapy. We can cure this now. Come cure diabetes. I can give you a great quality of life. So I'm into quality of life at my age, John. And we're, we're focusing on making make a difference. We're not just juggling the dose. And we're saving a lot of money. You're not in ERs every other month. And you're not spending a boatload on my medicine. You can spend a boatload on insulin. But, you know, that's another story. Oh, fascinating. So just to wrap things up, where do you see the future, you know, of this disease in terms of management? What's around the corner do you think is, is going to continue to to show improvement in, in treating people's symptoms? Well, I think uh, many drug companies are out there um, in phase three trials. We're on a couple. And the brain gut is the key. The brain gut connection without side effects. That's what everyone's uh, putting, their, putting their eggs in that basket. So we've got um, people that are looking at um, um, a me too, without CNS side effects, promoting gastric motility, and nausea is stopped. We have a domperidone-like drug, which doesn't have any side effects in the brain, but unfortunately, prolongs the QT interval. So they're now developing drugs, dopamine 2 antagonists, that will not prolong the QT interval. So that, that's being done by Takeda, it's being done by Neurogastrics, different companies are moving into phase three trials. So that will be good for your average mild to moderate diabetic. The, the thing we're doing with the NIH, John, we're part of what's called the NIH Gastroparesis Consortium, 
There's six centers in the country, Mayo Clinic, Stan, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, John Tompkins, Temple, uh, Louisville, and here us at Texas Tech. And we, we do, for the last 15 years, we've been funded to try to both treat and prevent. And we're finally into a prevention phase. Uh, what happens to the smooth muscle and um, is that they, they're, they're influenced uh, by cells, uh, interstitial cells of Cajal, uh, are one cell, but they develop uh, a dominant Micros micros mic microscopic M2 receptor. And that M2 receptor is good. It protects you from going into uh, losing your interstitial cells of Kahal. Whereas if you become M1 dominant over time with diabetes or other entities, the M1 paralyzes you. These are macrophages. So these are macrophages in the smooth muscle which in turn ooze out the M2s, which keep you in symbiosis. If over time, M1s transition, you lose degrees of uh, reduction to the point that you lose the interstitial cells of Cajal, hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1C may play a role, but hemoglobin oxygenase plays a role. And we have got a drug now called uh, glibatizone, glibatizone, which we are using in a double-blind fashion to see if we can uh, stop turning the M2 macrophages into M1. We're going to turn the M1 back into M2 and be preventive. The minute you get diabetes, take a drug that can prevent you from evolving from an M2 to an M1. Keep those um, macrophages and the interstitial cells of Cajal happy. We're very excited by that. We're just about to launch it. The other thing we're doing is microbiota. Isn't everyone? So idiopathic. Could the idiopathic guys really have bad vibrations in their duodenum and small bowel particularly? And this is getting up in their stomach and evolving into a gastroparesis phenomenon. So we're out there sampling um, in the stomach and small bowel now and we're doing our endoscopies, sampling for microbiota. Um, so I think they're the, they're the highlights, John. Um, we do reserve the fact that if you're obese, uh, you should think about either a bypass or a sleeve because a, then you'll have no stomach to worry about. A sleeve makes your stomach empty faster. Bypass, you have no stomach. And this, within six to 12 months, your diabetes can be dramatically improved by bypassing the portal blood flow duodenum connection. The diabetic cycle is minimized. So you can cure your diabetes, cure your obesity, prevent diabetic gastroparesis. So I, I do liberally work on my obese patients and tell them, you know, in 20 years, you'll have everything and you won't be able to exercise or walk as well. Let's be a dramatic and do something. Improve your life. 
And so we're, we're into trying to make a difference, John. And um, I, that, that can be important. Absolutely. Well, that's, you know, I'm really encouraged to hear about um, the field of gastroparesis, how it's, it's really moving, so to speak, um, moving forward. And um, I think uh, a lot of our providers and listeners or even patients who may be listening to this podcast will be encouraged by where things are going um, in the future. Um, so with yeah, that- I, Myself, John, quickly, you know, we've got 10 to 15 million people in the USA. You know, hepatitis C is 2%. Um, Spru, which appears to be epidemic in everyone's practice, is actually 3%. So, you know, this is, a, this is out there. It's in your practice. Uh, work with your diabetologist. Be alert. Premature fullness, nausea. Think about uh, the role of a gastric emptying. It takes four hours. Radioisotope, very simple. It's half a chest X-ray. You can make a diagnosis. And uh, making the diagnosis is the first thing. Otherwise, patients go from doctor to doctor as a mystery. So that's a that's a point I'd make here in gastroparesis month, John. I really thank you for. Sign, you know, activating the alarm signal and helping all of us, at least for now, remember how to diagnose it and treat it. Um, and you know, consult your friendly gastroenterologist, and you may have to think about a referral. Not all gastroenterologists like GI motility. It's not just endoscopy and you know billing. It's really a lot of contact with your patients. Um, there's also some CNS component. These patients may be very agitated and, and depressed, and you have to treat the whole patient. So not all specialists do that. Um, we have a society called the American Neurogastrology and Motility Society, ANMS, and they will send you or refer you or give you the list of doctors in your state near your city uh, who specialize in this entity which could help your patients uh, get the right advice as well. Outstanding. Well, once again, thank you, Dr. McCollum, for your time in this most interesting podcast. And I uh, look forward to uh, future uh, podcasts uh, later this year. Yeah, this is a big part of the gym uh, image. And uh, you've carried the banner so well, John. Congratulations and uh, good luck with your work on cystic fibrosis and other things in Nebraska. All right. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. My pleasure. Goodbye, listeners. I hope this has been helpful.